We're on the third week of our miracle series, and I have been loving this chance to really examine what miracles are. We've talked about it being when, when heaven invades earth and creates beauty. It's also when heaven invades earth and creates a separation between us and darkness that wants to steal from us. And so we see heaven touch down in the life of Jesus. We see these places that where there's this intersection of light and darkness. And when we see it, light always wins. Even on the cross, light won. Didn't look like it, but even on the cross, the ultimate cage match of light and darkness, light always wins. Life always wins. So we are believing for life and heaven to invade our space here. To come and show up and show us a new way of living and a new way of hoping. So today we're going to look at two especially beautiful miracles. We're going to start in Luke 13. It says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. This week when people were asking me what I was speaking on, I was saying, I'm speaking on the crooked woman. And they'd be like, what? I mean, it's a miracle we don't talk about very much. I think it's a little bit obscure. But it's a really great one to teach on because the, the writer, Luke, gives us so much detail right up front in this first scripture. Right out of the gate, he tells us that Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And this is a significant thing. There's a lot of times in the Gospels where Jesus shows up in the synagogue. And there are times where Jesus shows up on the Sabbath to heal or do whatever. But in the synagogue on the Sabbath only happens three times in the book of Luke. And it shows us a little bit about the mission of Jesus. Um, the first time he shows up there, we talked about it two weeks ago. It's out of Luke 4 and also out of Isaiah. Jesus comes to the synagogue. They hand him a scroll. It's the prophet Isaiah. And he, he reads it. He reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you remember when we talked about this before, we talked about how when he says proclaim liberty to the prisoners, these are prisoners of war. These aren't prisoners in prisons. These are prisoners of a spiritual war, prisoners of a cosmic battle. We don't shame prisoners of war for ending up in prison. We just set them free. And so prisoners of war exist among us. And Jesus said, I've come to set them free. And I love this whole passage because it's kind of bookended by two statements. There's a statement at the beginning and a statement at the end. And those statements have already happened. We already own those statements. The first one is, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Um, that's actually us. In the Greek, that means the spiritually poor. And so that's all of us. We were all born pretty bankrupt. So Jesus came to proclaim glad tidings, happy news to the spiritually poor. Good day. That's you. That's me. Jesus is here with good news for us. And then the other statement at the other end of this is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that word favor in the Greek means acceptance. This is the, the he, he's proclaiming everyone who was outside the borders and boundaries of being the people of God is welcome in. Everyone is accepted. Everyone is loved. And so Jesus came to proclaim the good, happy news 
to the spiritually poor that they are accepted. That's the, that's the whole framework of this passage. Jesus is saying, this is me. I'm the fulfillment of this. So that's the framework. We have good news of great joy that we are loved and accepted. And in the middle of the passage is where all the miracle stuff is. That's where all the kind of messy miracle, here's what is possible because of these two things. And so what is possible? Uh, sight to the blind, freedom to the captive, heal the brokenhearted. That's what's possible because of the bookended statements that Jesus makes about his mission. This is his mission statement. This is why he came. So that we could be loved and accepted by God and we could know it. So that's what Jesus says the first time in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The second time he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, it's in Luke 6. And he heals the man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are super mad about it because you're not supposed to do that. There are rules about how we behave in a holy place on a holy day. There are rules. We have a certain code of conduct in a holy place on a holy day. I know this because I was a church kid. I was raised in church. And there were rules. Like for me, I didn't go to... I didn't go across the way to a cool, happy, Play-Doh-filled children's place. I sat with my parents, and they made sure that I was quiet, that there was no giggling, that there was no gum chewing. There wasn't even any scribbling allowed. My daughter's nodding her head, and I'm a little bit worried that I was that mom too, wasn't I? Um, mostly we're complaining about my parents right now, so if we could keep it limited to that. I um, got in trouble for running in church, even if bad people were chasing me, the bad people being seven-year-old boys, I got in trouble for running when I was being chased. That's how my parents were. They watch every time I speak, so hey, Stan, thanks for that. <laughs> um, there's behavior code. We have a code of conduct. We come in here and we like to look pretty neat. We like to keep it in orderly rows. We know when the songs start and stop. We know it's acceptable behavior here. The Pharisees definitely knew it was acceptable behavior. And you know what wasn't acceptable? Something good happening to someone in a holy place on a holy day. It didn't work for them. And so then we come to this idea of 18 years. This woman has been held captive for 18 years. How old were you 18 years ago? I was... Oh, some of you are like, I know, I get it, shush. All of you, we get it. You're very young. <laughs> That's, thanks for being here, high school. It's fun to have you. Um, yeah, some of, some of you weren't here. Some of you were living a different way. I, I have seen a lot in the last 18 years. I've married off three kids in the last 18 years. I've buried a husband. I've changed cities and jobs. I've taken on six more kids. I've seen a lot in 18 years. You know what this woman has seen in 18 years? The ground. Her whole life, she has been, or not her whole life, her whole 18 years, she's been hunched over. All she can see is the ground. I have, should I mention my granddaughter? I think I should. I have a granddaughter that was born in May, and um, I just look ahead at her life, and I think, what will it look like in 18 years? So this woman has been hunched over. I think the real miracle starts that she's even in the synagogue at all. She's a woman in a society where it's really hard to be a woman. She's a woman who doesn't have much uh, social equity at all. 
She doesn't have agency. She is also a woman with a very significant and very visible disability. And that is, there is not a place for her in polite society. She would look like an outcast. She would look like she's done something wrong to get herself into this position. She is a prisoner of war, but it looks very much in this culture like she's someone who has done a lot wrong in her life. And so that she brings herself, her broken body, to a holy place on a holy day is kind of amazing. She's really courageous. And I don't know why she's there. Did she hear about Jesus coming or was she just dev devoted to her spiritual life? I don't know, but either way, it's impressive that she's there. Back to our story. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. I love the variety of ways that Jesus heals people in the New Testament. I think it keeps us from getting silly about the things we expect him to do. It keeps us from putting him in some kind of box that says, no, you always spit on the mud and put it on their eyes. No, you always definitely respond to someone calling and if they don't ask you to heal him, you never heal him. He does things a different way every time and he doesn't, it doesn't have to look like we think it should look. She doesn't cry out to him at all. She doesn't seem to ask him for anything. She doesn't cry out to him like blind Bartimaeus. She doesn't crawl to him like the woman with the issue of blood. She doesn't even ask him for anything. Is it possible that maybe she can't even see him? Doesn't matter. He sees her. All you need to know is that you're seen by God. I mean, if you come in here thinking, I just need to get myself together. I need to get it right. I need to ask him in the right way. I remember when my husband got sick, People came to us and they were well-intentioned. They really were. They meant well. But they had a thousand different ways that maybe we could twist God's arm to see us and love us and heal my husband. They had a thousand different ideas for us. You need to take communion every day or you need to visit the prayer room every day or you need to go to this church or that church or that movement or that thing. And then Jesus will heal you. And I, meant, I remember feeling exhausted by all the ideas. And I remember thinking, Jesus, I think you're big enough and good enough to see us right here right here without even lifting a finger, without even saying a word, I believe that you see me here. And I know that he did. And so Jesus calls to the woman. He spots her infirmity and he calls to her. And I think maybe Jesus is already seeing you. Maybe you already have his attention. And then Jesus puts his hands on her and we cannot understand how subversive this act is inside this culture. Touching a woman who is afflicted in the synagogue on the Sabbath checks all of the Pharisees' naughty list. Jesus is not going to be rewarded for his good behavior here. He has done a, a thing that is against the rules. And in this case, in some cases he says be healed, but in this case he says to her be free. And the word free here is the same word as divorce. He said to her, be divorced. What do you think that means? Let's look at it in a minute. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come to be healed on these, those days, not on the Sabbath. I love this idea. It's just Jesus broke the code of conduct. He, he's not yelling at Jesus. He's yelling at the people. Why do you think you are coming to a holy place on a holy day expecting something holy to happen to you? Stop it. That's not what this is for. 
And Jesus is like, maybe it is. And I want to be really indignant about this myself. I want to be very judgy at the Philistines for not wanting people to get healed in a holy place on a holy day. But when I look at my own self and how many times I walk into this place with such low expectation for what could happen, I'm like, oh, shoot. Maybe it's me. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Can you hear the angst and perhaps even the anger in this statement? Jesus is like, how dare you miss the point so badly? You have missed the point of being in this place on this day. This is emotional. This is Jesus. When I look at spiritual formation and what makes us like God and try to figure it out, how do I become like him? And it can look like this complicated lifelong pursuit and how do I, what do I do? I really, we could just start with the question, what makes God mad? Let's not do that. What makes God happy? Let's do more of that. What makes God mad is these people putting the health and safety of their animals ahead of the healing and wholeness of people. Because Jesus communicates in this passage so clearly, people first, always. People before rules, people before donkeys, people before conduct, people first, even when it's messy, even when it makes the place look a little crazy. People first. First, And he tells them she is a daughter of Abraham. This is a very big statement because in this moment, Jesus has restored to this woman her rightful identity. He's saying to the woman, you are exactly as in as those guys are. They're sons of Abraham, sure, but you are a daughter of Abraham. And as a daughter of Abraham, you have rights. As a daughter of Abraham, you are something important. And he says to her, be divorced. From what? From darkness. Because Jesus also communicates in this passage that sometimes things look physical, but they're very spiritual instead. Not always, but sometimes. This time. So we always want to start by asking Jesus to set us free. He uses the word divorced. He uses this word because we don't know what this woman's relationship is to her affliction. How did she end up bound up by Satan for 18 years? I don't know. Did she make a deal with the devil at one point? I don't know. I wish I had some of these answers. I'll store up these questions for a day when I get to talk with Jesus about his word. But she has an alliance somehow with darkness. And Jesus says, I'm setting you free. I'm, a divorce is a legal action that ends a relationship and all of the entanglements that are involved in that relationship. We've quoted in the last couple of weeks Hosea 2 as well when he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure you to the wilderness and I will speak comfort to her there. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth and the door of troubling will become a door of hope. And that's beautiful. But then it goes on to say, and she will then call me, no longer call me my master. She will call me my husband. Jesus 
divorces her from darkness and invites her into a brand new, restorative, uh, uh, joy-filled relationship with himself. This is a whole change of name, a whole change of identity. She stands up straight. She becomes a worshiper. She's no longer just the hunched over woman at the temple. And then he lets the Pharisees have it for not valuing her above their own donkeys. What's interesting is he doesn't say she's, your donkeys don't matter. That's why there was a rule that they could get them out of a ditch. Jesus cares about life. But he cares about people. And we need to too. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. They're happy for the moment, but they're eventually going to kill him for this kind of thing. So let's not believe that freedom always comes easily, because it doesn't. There will always be people who stand in the way of your freedom. There will always be people who doubt your ability to get free. There will always be people who think you ought to stay stuck so that they can feel better about staying stuck too. But freedom is always worth it. It's a fight worth fighting for. So quick look at another miracle story that has so many similarities, but a couple of distinctives. This one is after Jesus has ascended and the Holy Spirit has come and is working through the apostles and the disciples and even just regular old church attenders in powerful ways. Miracles busting out all over the place. And so what happens here is it says one afternoon, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. And I like that this specificity is here. I mean, does it matter to any of us that it's three in the afternoon? Nope. Doesn't matter to me. I don't care. But it mattered to the guy who's about to meet them. And it mattered to Luke to include it because he's saying this is a specific story, a real story that took place at a real time, on a real day, at a real location, with a real human. A guy that has a mom and dad. A guy that apparently has some good friends. A guy who's been stuck for a long time. The man was lame from birth and was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those entering the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. A couple of things we know here. This guy was lame from birth, so this was a lifetime affliction. This was all he's ever known. This isn't just his condition. This is his identity. He's stuck all his life. We know he has friends and they're willing to drop him off at the gate beautiful and beg for money. The juxtaposition here at his location is stunning. I think that's why Luke includes it. The gate beautiful is massive and magnificent. It takes 25 men to move the gate, to open and shut it. And they put this guy here who's powerless, can't move, afflicted for his whole life. They put him here to beg in the shadows of this gate that represents safety and strength and power. And can you see them up next to each other? How incredible it must have been to see this guy every day begging for his food. Peter and John go to the temple and they go to the temple pretty much every day like good Jews would have. You know who else would have gone to this temple a bunch of times? Jesus. Would have walked by that guy. Do you know why Jesus didn't heal that guy? I don't know either. I don't have the answer. But I think it's an interesting question. Maybe when the guy asked Jesus for money, Jesus had it. 
gave it to him. Maybe you gave him what he asked for. I don't know. Another question. Somebody write that down for our list. Um, Peter looked directly at him, as did John. Look at us, said Peter. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. This is such an interesting interaction. Peter and John looking at him intently. The original language is very, they're very staring at him. They're looking at him, and I think they're wanting him to look back at them, and he doesn't, and so they finally say, hey, look at us. This guy has been stuck a long time, and his position is not at eye level. The man expects that Peter and John will throw a quarter in his cup, but instead, Peter looks at him and says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Taking him by the right hand, again, there's another detail that I love that Luke provides. Taking him by the right hand, Peter helped him up. And at once, the man's feet and ankles were made strong. He sprang to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God, creating a ruckus all over the place. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They're like, oh man, this guy every single day shows up at a holy place. And nothing good happened to him until right now. Something changed his whole life here. Like the woman, this man is paralyzed by his condition. He is stuck. Neither one of them is blind, but neither one of them can truly see either. And like the woman, this is a long-time affliction. It's an affliction that has become an identity. And sometimes when an affliction becomes an identity, instead of asking for a miracle, what we ask instead is just for help to live without a miracle. Just give me enough resources to get through the day. Just help me live with this thing that I don't know what to do with. Oh my, just help me live with it because I don't even trust you enough to ask you to take it away from me. And can we talk about the fact that Peter and John were flat broke? They don't have a single thing to throw in his cup. That might have been their problem going into the day. They might have been like, hey, should we sit alongside that guy <coughs> and beg for our lunch? Apparently it didn't pay very well being an apostle because they don't have a single thing to give him. But at the end of their resources, they found the beginning of something bigger and more supernatural and more life-changing than any kind of money could have bought the guy. And sometimes we ask for things that we really, really think we need. And then we discover that without them, we're forced to find what God always meant for us to have all along. When all the people see the guy walking, they realize, that's that guy. That's the guy that sits at the gate all the time. The little weak guy. The guy that's never been able to walk. Look at him go. They realize his whole life has been changed. And now he's not just the beggar who can walk. Now he's a worshiper in the house of God. Something has definitely and definitively changed in this guy's life and in his future. Both of these miracles are miracles of movement. They are interventions from heaven that get two people back on their feet and moving again. But they are also miracles of identity. And we can ask for the same thing in our own lives. I wonder if there are places in your life where you feel bent over by the weight of your condition. By worry over your children. By worry over money or career or depression or anxiety or heartache or loss or shame, Joe mentioned it this morning. Shame is a powerful debilitator. What is it that keeps you unable 
to see Jesus when he comes by? What is it that you feel like you need help to get through the day with? Are there places in your life where you feel stuck? Like you're begging for help to live with affliction rather than believing for a miracle to be free from it? Maybe you feel like every day you ask God to throw a quarter in your cup. If you just help me get through this day, if you just help me survive this marriage, if you just help me to survive high school, just help me survive my parents, just help me survive this job, just help me survive this anxiety, just get me in this car ride home. I've had moments in my battle with anxiety where I've just been like, just get me to the morning. Just get me through this long, dark night to the morning and I will just thank you for it then. Sometimes we just ask for help when we could ask for freedom. Sometimes we do have to manage our mess. We have to take steps to coexist with our condition. But let's also include asking God for miraculous intervention. Let's return to the belief that he can step in where we cannot and give us an immediate change or intermittent steps and skills to reestablish forward motion and to live in our identity as chosen, loved children of God. He can give us miraculous steps. I had a miracle in my life in about the last, let me think, about eight, 10 weeks because I was experiencing every day around three o'clock anxiety, 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 just, just debilitating, awful anxiety. And then I stopped drinking caffeine and it was a miracle. I feel set free, truly. It mattered and I count it as a way that God spoke to me and intervened in a condition and set me free. I've told you I've dealt with debilitating fear all my life and there was a moment when my, my dad, I, I know exactly when the door opened to it when I was 10 years old. I know exactly what did it. I know exactly how I got there. And every night from one night after having watched a television show I never should have watched, every single night of my life until I was 28, I struggled with believing that someone was going to kill me that very night, every night. And I called my dad and I said, I cannot live like this anymore and I have to be free. And he prayed for me and a remarkable thing happened in my life in that moment. And then after that moment was a process of walking out my freedom. There was a process and it involved sometimes God intervened in my life through the, the help of a trained professional spirit-led counselor who helped me take steps toward freedom, who said things like, hey, how's that caffeine intake? Stuff like that. One time for about six months, God intervened in my life with medication. And it created the interruption that I needed so that I could see truth and see light in darkness. But I see every step along the way that has led me to a point of freedom in my life as miraculous. I see the miracle in his strong arm I see the miracle in a counselor. I see the miracle in the times when I needed medication. I see his miraculous intervention in my life saying to me, you are a daughter of Abraham and you are married to me and I will take care of my own. When the woman comes to the temple, Jesus names her problem and he names it so succinctly. He names it 18, 18 years, 18 years of bondage, 18 years of affliction, 18 years of sorrow and heartache and loss, 18. 
a woman came to me in the first service just in our little two-minute meet and greet. She's a friend of mine, and she said, this is a great day. And I said, why is it a great day, Melissa? And she said, because today I am 18 months clean and sober. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. She's part of Celebrate Recovery, and she has seen God intervene in her life, and she is no longer bound to the things she was bound to before. She is a daughter of Abraham. I mentioned my granddaughter because I don't really want you to think about what is the last 18 years. That can do you some good. What happened in the last 18 years? What have I been bound to? What's my life? All of that stuff. But what I want to ask you is, where will you be in 18 years? What's next? What's coming? If nothing changes from this day forward, if you don't ever see a change in in grief and anxiety and fear and depression and the things that keep us hunched over and stuck, what, where will you be in 18 years? I pray for my grandbaby because in 18 years it'll be 2041 and that's her graduating class. How old am I right now? And I pray that every day of her life, she will be a child of Abraham who walks as one whose God is the the lifter of her head, that she knows his freedom and his healing and deliverance and hope and life and joy. I pray for that for her next 18 years of life. That's like a whole first part of her lifetime from infancy to adulthood. So much can happen in 18 years, and I'm saying that to you today. That's my hope for you today. In the next 18 years or 18 months or 18 weeks or 18 days, if that's what you can believe for today, what could happen if God stepped in and renamed you and called you and spoke to your affliction? What could happen if we welcomed him in to the places that we've put away for a long time? What could happen if we meet him in a holy place on a holy day and we ask him to do a holy thing? I want to ask the prayer people to come forward and just be standing here. Um, because if you're here today, I'd love for you to not leave until you have someone to pray for you if you're struggling with something that's been a part of your life for a while and you're like, I just want, I just want to take this first step and pray. They're just going to pray with you for a minute and let you go. They're wonderful and amazing. I love them. They pray for me every time before I speak and it's such a gift. And I want to speak a blessing over you. Would you stand with me? Before the blessing... I want to mention that I would love to see you next weekend because we have a fantastic guest speaker here. Um, I really think you'll love him. He's a lot like, he reminds me of Keith Jenkins because he is Keith Jenkins. Yeah. He is coming next weekend. He's going to be here and he's going to bring it. And I'm so excited about that. Um, Jesus, we love you. We love you and we thank you. And we invite you to walk the hallways of our hearts take a look in the rooms, move stuff around, toss stuff out. We trust you. We trust you, God of miracles. We trust you, holy God, in this holy place, on this holy day, and we ask that you would meet us here. Meet us, each and every one. We give you glory for who you are and what you do. 
In your name we pray, amen. If you want to receive a blessing, I invite you to put your hands out in front of you. I bless you with the miracle of movement to be able to see up above the heads of your enemies and into the horizon of the future God has already marked out for you. I bless you to step into Jesus' yoke where the burdens you carry are not a crushing weight, but a shared adventure with the one who is always bringing his strength to our weakness. In the name of the one who sets us emphatically, wildly, totally free. Amen. Have a great weekend. Get some prayer if you'd like to with these people up front. We'll see you next week.